welcome. We are glad that you're here. Um, it's been said already, but if, if this is your first time with us, uh, an extra special welcome to you. You hit us on a Sunday that um, it's exciting for us because this has been, been something that's in the works for about a year. And it's something we've been intentionally, um, as internally as a, as a staff and as a community, working towards um, how the visual aspect of our church takes place, what, what we represent ourselves with. Um, so we're, we're excited that today this will be a part of, part of the journey we go on. But um, along with that today, we have, I want to give you three we statements. Okay, so three we statements. Now, I want to clarify for a minute what I mean when I say we. Because we would be really easy to um, think that it's everyone in the room and it's everyone or bigger than that, it's just the church. Whatever the church is, then we just lob it on the church and, and we means the church is going to do it. Well, today we means this, that we are a collective of individuals who are on a journey of faith that have gathered together in a space and in this space called Heights, we're a family. And so we're a collective of believers that have joined together in this space as a family, and we're declaring that this is what's true about us. So the we statements are true about each of us as individuals and as a collective. So, so we'll get into those in a minute, but I don't know, maybe you can remember, maybe it hasn't happened for you yet, and you're excited for it to happen, but do you remember learning how to drive? Yeah, some of you prefer to forget, or maybe the person that taught you would prefer to forget. Um, but, but learning how to drive, like, like it's just something that's kind of a rite of passage within our, within our world, within our culture. And uh, what's fascinating for me is getting the privilege of teaching my kids how to drive. Like, like for me, it was one of the highlights of being a dad moment, especially when I was like, you're going to learn how to drive manual right? Because my car was a manual and I'm like, you got to learn how to drive it. First of all, it's just cool if a chick knows how to drive manual. Agreed? Like it's, it's just a cool thing. So I'm like, you're going to be cool kids and I'm going to help you get there. Um, so, so I'm like, you're going to learn how to do it. And, and first thing, so, so now I'm in that role, I become a guide, right? Because they don't know how to do it. And, and so essentially I'm going to guide them into doing it. I'm going to help them get past something they can't do and, and help them move forward. That's what a guide does for us. It's kind of like Yoda with Luke, right? Everybody, right? It's just the way it works. Yoda's a guide for Luke or Katniss and Hamish, right? Same, same idea. Like you have a guide that helps you get somewhere. Or if you want to go a little old school, right? We go back to Rocky and Mickey. Come on, Rocky and Mickey, right? So um, Mickey will yell at you and get you to do what you don't want. Same idea when you get in a car and, and you're going to drive. And, and so my kids get in the car and first thing is like, there's three pedals. There's only two in mom's. Like, what is, you'll be all right. Just push the clutch in, right? So which one's the clutch? Explain all that. Get the clutch in. And when you know it, what happens the first time every time? That clutch comes so fast out that they got whiplash. And the cars are, right? And you're just done. So, so you get beyond that moment. And inevitably, then there's the moment of too much gas and the clutch out too slow and the smell, right? Of, of your clutch just burning. And you're trying not to overreact. Like, let it go! You try not to do that because you just want to make sure that... Uh, 
they don't freak out, but you're freaking out. So you're trying to maintain composure as a guide, right? And, and so, and then the other thing that happens is at some point they learn that if uh, they rev it and let it out fast, things will squeal and then it gets really fun, right? And so, so there's, there's this process of learning how to drive where, where you have a guide, but, but here's the beauty of it. There's this moment inside of this where for my daughter, she's going, I'm never going to get this. And as a guide, what do you tell them? Just push through. You can do this. Why? Because that's what a guide is there for, to help you move beyond where you are at the moment into where you need to go. And, and so there's, there's this moment then when they think they can't get it, when all of a sudden they finally get it, and it becomes extremely fun, way more fun than driving mom's car, right? So um, we're going to hit this whole idea of guide today. And we're going to do it from multiple angles. And we're going to tie it into each one of these we statements. So if you have a Bible, turn to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4 is where we'll begin. And I'm just going to warn you today, we're just kind of going to go on a Bible kind of journey together. Um, But hopefully it all connects and, and works in a way that when we get done, we go, oh, that's where we're going. So hang in there on this journey. So Joshua chapter four. Now there's a context for the, for what we're about to dive into. There's a context that's placed and the context is this, that the, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, the people that call themselves Israelites have been set free by God. There's millions of them. They're walking in the desert. They've been walking in the desert for many years. They get to a point where Joshua is now the leader and God tells Joshua, you're going to cross over the river Jordan The River Jordan's at flood stage. We talked about this a couple of months ago. River Jordan's at flood stage, but you're going to cross. How you're going to do it, you're going to take the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, which was a big box carried by poles, and that represented the physical presence of God on earth. The priests are going to carry it, and when they put their foot into the water, you are going to be able to cross over on dry ground. Now, millions of people are going to cross over on dry ground. And then God tells them one other thing. He says, when you're doing this, what I want you to do is when you get into the middle of the river, I want you to collect 12 rocks, 12 stones out of the river, and you're going to carry them to the other side. And so now they go down in the river, the river, the water's part, it is said that it heaps up in one place and it's cut off from the other. They walk across on dry ground, right? Walk across on dry ground, no mud on their shoes. They get to the other side. The guys pick up this rocks, they come through, and this is where we pick it up. And the priest came up out of the water. So the priests are the last ones out carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. Next verse. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan. So they've come out of the river, camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. Next verse. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. So so they get the 12 stones. They get up to this place called Gilgal, which which means the circle. They get up there and, and one on top of the other, Joshua stacks these 12 Stones. Next verse. He said to the Israelites, so now Joshua is speaking to all the people. He speaks to all the people. He says, in the future, when your descendants ask, ask their parents, what do these stones mean? So, so Joshua now is being a guide to the Israelites. Joshua is guiding them in how to respond when people see these rocks that have been left in place. Next verse. Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. 
Next verse. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. So, so Joshua's telling them, when people see those rocks, what you're to tell someone else is that the Lord did for you what he did for Moses and your, your um, ancestors he did the same thing there that he's done here. So, so this is connecting. These rocks now that are in this space, these rocks now connect back to the past, to the, what God had done there. They, can, they connect to the recent past of the crossing, but they're really for the future generations. So these rocks are stacked intentionally to connect the past to the present to the future. Next verse. He did this so all the peoples of the earth might know that the, the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord. So, so, so now God did this. So these rocks are now speaking to everyone else through the Israelites. When they see them, the Israelites say, the Lord did this so that you might know that he is the Lord. Now, what I found fascinating with the rocks is when they go into the river, there's rocks everywhere. The, 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 these weren't the rocks that he did. They weren't told to pick the ones that shine the brightest. They weren't told to pick the ones that are shaped the smoothest. They weren't told to pick the ones that, that you, that, that, that I have this set of criteria. And if it fits this criteria, then pick those rocks. And those are the ones that are going to be stacked. And those are the ones that will represent God and how powerful he is. And, and so everyone, he, he never says that. He says, go and pick some rocks. And maybe, maybe just connecting our first we statement, it goes like this. That, that these rocks were ordinary. There was nothing special about them. But what these rocks represent is the extraordinary. We are ordinary. But we represent the extraordinary God, God that we serve. That we are ordinary. But we represent a God who is powerful. That, that, that well, we may not be the shiniest and we may not be the smartest and we may not be the brightest. And, and, and you're like, speak for yourself, brother John, right? <laughs> but well, me, we may not have it all together. Well, me, we may have edges that are sharp. Well, we may have edges that are broken. Well, we may, uh, what we need to get is that we are, we are the stones, so to speak. We are, we are the ordinary that represents the extraordinary. That people should see us. And when they see us and they go, why are you the way you are? Let me tell you a story about an extraordinary God who's done miracles. And so the first is just that we are ordinary, but we represent the extraordinary. There's another story, and it's later, it's, it's found in Jeremiah, but Jeremiah is, so the Israelites journey with God, right? And God ends up setting them up in a, in a nation, in a land, they get in the promised land, and there, there's Jerusalem, which is the hub of their, one of the hubs of their nation, and, and God set up all the time with them, 
this covenant that went like this, that if you do what I tell you to, you will be blessed. All the nations will see that you're blessed and they'll know that there's a God in Israel. If you do not do what I tell you to, I'm going to put you under punishment, so to speak, and judgment, and you're going to get hauled off by those nations and you'll become their slaves, right? So, so it's pretty clear. Follow God, he'll bless you, and the whole world will see that there's a God. Don't follow God and he will essentially judge you and these nations will walk in and they'll take you captive and lead you out. So Jeremiah is a prophet, right? He speaks on behalf of God. And the prophet shows up in a time when the nation is not doing what God told them to do. And so the prophet's message all the way through is doom, 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 doom. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Jerusalem's going to fall. You're losing your city because you've disobeyed what God's told you to do. You broke the covenant with God, right? And so then in Jeremiah 31 and verse 21, there's this, there's this moment of hope that is cast forward. There's this moment of hope that's put forward by the prophet. And this is in the context of when you're being taken away and you're being led out and you're being taken to Babylon, who were the oppressors, when you are captives, on your way as captives, set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highway, the road you take, return virgin Israel, return to your town. So, so set up road signs. That word road sign can be translated rock monuments or rock cairns. The idea is that as they're going down the road, set up markers. Why? Because there will be a day when God will redeem you and you need to follow the rock markers all the way back home. The rocks were designed to be markers that led you to the place where you belong. The rock markers are, the, are designed to take you to the place where you should be to your destination. And so along the way, they set up rock monuments. Why? Because someday God was going to redeem them and bring them back. Set up road signs, put up guideposts. We are the markers that lead other people home. We are, as a family, as a collective of believers that call Heights home, our role on this planet is that we are, people look at us and what we are, we are a guidepost, we are a signpost, we are a rock cairn, we are a marker that points them to where they've always belonged. See, God's on this mission. He's always been on a mission. God's always been about humanity is best when humanity is at one with God. And so all the way through, ever since the fall, ever since Genesis, ever since early on in the Bible, when humanity walks away from God, God has been pursuing humanity and he's been putting signposts all the way along to lead them home. How do I know where home is? Home is when you are at home with God. Why? Because you find peace, you find joy, you find belonging, you find where your soul was always intended to be at its best. The markers that he's placed along the way, we are the markers. You are the markers. 
And this whole idea of this is what we're called to as a collective of believers as the church becomes extremely valuable in the sense of then the question we had is how do you represent this? How do you represent this? How, how do you visually show the world that this is what we are? How do we visually um, put it in a context that every time we see it, we're reminded of who we really are. We're reminded of what we're here for. We're reminded why we exist. We're reminded why God is blessing us. And so about a year ago, um, we, we started going through this journey together. We had a company come in and they sat us in a room and they started talking to us and they said, hey, like, like what, do you, what do you guys really care about? What do, what do you as a, as a church, as the DNA of who the church is, what, what do you believe that God has called you to? And so we began to walk through this with them and they came up with an entire brand for us and you're going to see that a lot more in other places. But they also came up with a visual to go, this is, this is after listening to everything you've said, this is a visual that we think. And so we worked with them with that visual and, and this is what we've come up with to represent ourselves. Now you may have an instant gut reaction. You may like it. You may not care. You may go, that's cool. You may like cross the board, right? That's fair. But I want to explain so that, so that when you begin to see this everywhere as a visual representation of who we are, I, I want you to catch what it actually stands for. Because just like we just walk through stories that take us back thousands of years, and we would say that those stories are relevant to us today, that we would say that the stories that you find in scripture that take us back to the beginning that that entire story is God's grace moving towards us in this moment. That we didn't just stumble into it in 2018. We didn't just stumble into it in here and go, hey, we've figured it out. But there's an entire journey behind us of people that have, that have gone before us that we stand on the shoulders of. We would call this standing on the shoulders of grace. That we stand on the shoulders of grace. That we're not here um, just because we thought this was a good idea, but we have an entire people, not to mention the people, by the way, who took a giant risk one day and left First Baptist on the square and said, we're going to plant a church called, but at that point, it wasn't Heights. It was Prescott Baptist Heights Church. And they took a risk and they took a gamble and they said, we're going to step out and follow Jesus. We stand on their shoulders of grace. They've come before us. They've worked um, they've walked with God, they've journeyed this faith, and we stand on their shoulders. So the stacking represents that we stand on their shoulders. Thank you. The second thing it represents is if you go out into our, our context that God has us in a desert, right? And you go out and you get on a trail, you begin to notice these little rock piles. And they're called rock cairns. And what those rock piles do is those rock piles lead you forward. They hopefully lead you to your destination. We believe that God has positioned us, that God has put us in a place where we, as a community, as a community, we are the rock cairns. We are the rock cairns that lead the way forward for an entire humanity that God's put around us. And our job is to set a path that leads them towards Jesus. And so you'll notice that this looks an awful lot like a rock cairn. 
that every time we see it, what we want to be reminded is we stand on shoulders of grace and our role in the world is to put a path for people to find their way home. And so you're going to see this everywhere. Now, one last story, because I told you I have three statements. In Luke chapter 8, there is a man who is demon-possessed. But the story doesn't begin with the demon-possessed man. You can take the verses off. I'm just going to story tell it. The story doesn't begin with the demon-possessed man. The story begins with the disciples getting into a boat, and the boat is, it, it sets out, and all of a sudden a storm comes up. And in the midst of a storm where the disciples who are experienced fishermen begin to look at one another and go, we're going to die. That, it, that it's in the midst of that moment that Jesus, they go and wake Jesus up. Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm. And they go to the other side in awe and amazement and wonder. And when they get to the other side, it says that Jesus steps out of the boat. And as he steps out of the boat, this man comes out of the tombs. And this man comes rushing towards him. And the Bible says specifically that the man was demon-possessed. Now, if you're not new to church, you're going, man, I don't know about this whole... Just, just, it, it's a story, right? It was an eyewitness account. I get the struggle with it. But it says that this man was demon-possessed and he came to Jesus. It tells us about the man that the man had lived in the caves, lived in the tombs for a long time. That he was naked. That he, and Mark, it talks about that he would cut himself with stones. And, and what's fascinating with this story in that context is that shame was connected with nakedness. And what the Bible's trying to communicate is this man was living in extreme shame, so much shame that he isolated himself into tombs, which are where dead people are. And so you have someone who is alive looking for life in the place of the dead. And what he ends up doing is he's in so much pain and so much anguish that he start, begins to cut himself to relieve some of the pain. It says that they would chain him and tie him. And he was so strong that he would shatter the chains that, that, that people feared him because he could not be controlled. And so he comes to Jesus and he begins to... He begins to scream at Jesus, what do you want with me? And Jesus calls the demon out of the man. And the demon begins to beg Jesus at this point. He begins to beg him several times, please, please don't send us to the abyss, which was a, is believed to be the place of, of just nothing. A giant, dark, black hole is, is the actual translation. And I say, please don't send us to the place of the abyss. Send us into the pigs instead. What I want you to get is this, that, that even in this context where, where demon possession, whatever you think about that, whatever you think of evil spirits and that whole thing, they beg Jesus, not Jesus begging them. What we need to get is that, that they are the ones that have to bow before Jesus, not Jesus bowing before them. I don't know what darkness you face. I don't know what's in your world, but I know this, that your darkness is a lot smaller and has to tremble at Jesus's name. I know that your darkness cannot stand in the presence of Jesus and not bow. I know that your darkness doesn't have a place. In fact, your darkness begs Jesus don't forget where your power is. 
Don't forget where your strength is. On the days when you don't want to get out of bed, get out of bed. Don't let the darkness have a power that it does not belong in your world. The enemy will speak voices over you that your shame is too much. You know what shame does? Shame wants to isolate us. Because if we isolate ourselves, we don't have to voice our shame. But your shame is welcome in the presence of Jesus. And it says that the, Jesus sends the demons into the pigs and the pigs run down and off a cliff and they drowned. The people who own the pigs a little bit ticked off. <laughs> they're, they're not posting selfies at that point. The people who own the pigs, they rush back to the town, right? And when they get back to the town, they, they tell everybody what's happened. This Jesus has ruined our business. And so they come rushing out to see what's happening. And when they're on the way, what happens is they, they stop because they see the man that was demon-possessed sitting, sitting at the feet of Jesus. You know what sitting represents? That he's at peace probably for the first time in a really long time. How did he end up at peace? How did he end up at peace? He met Jesus. Jesus had done a work in him. Jesus had set him free. And he finds peace sitting at the feet of Jesus. Reminds me of another story of Mary and Martha. Martha's busy doing everything. She's so stressed out with life that she's missing that Jesus is sitting in her presence. And she goes to Jesus like, what's up with my sister? You let my sister just sit here while I do all the work. And Jesus goes, she's found the better thing. The better thing in that context was sitting at the feet of Jesus. This man has now found the better thing of sitting at the feet of Jesus. If you have stress and you have struggle and you are busy and you are overwhelmed, can I help you out that maybe you're just not spending enough time at the feet of Jesus? That if you feel like you don't have time for anything and you feel like you don't know how to navigate what's in front of you, and you that's all stress, right? That all builds up and that get, just, just the place you release it is at the feet of Jesus. And it says that, I love this, it says that he is clothed. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed. Why is that significant? Because if nakedness is shame, then his shame has been removed. And I'd love to think, like, I don't have anything to back this up, so don't shoot me. But I would love to think that it's Jesus who took off his outer garment and Jesus covered his shame. Why do I think that? Because that's what Jesus has done for me. If you're here and you're beat up under your shame and the weight of it, can I, you got to just let Jesus take it. You weren't designed to live under it. You're not guilty. You're free. And he sets the man free. And then Jesus, the people who had the pigs, you remember those guys? They're not happy still. They, they want Jesus to get out of there. You've ruined us. Leave. So Jesus gets in a boat. As he's about to leave, the man comes up to him. And he says, take me with you. Please don't leave me with these guys. Like, you seen them? Um, take me with you. And Jesus goes, he, he says to him, and can we put that verse up, the go home verse? I think it's around 38 or 39. 
Jesus says, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Return home and tell everyone how much God has done for you. Return home. Return to the space that you call home. Return to the space that you belong. Return to the space where you'll go to work. Return to the space where you'll play. Return to the space where you'll sit with friends. Return to the space that, that, that where people know you the best. Return there. And when you get there, tell them all that God's done. Brings me to my last we statement. We, we, we are the markers who lead other people to Jesus. All you got to do is get up tomorrow and living in what God's done for you, walk into every space you do and you just tell someone. That's the call on our life. Wake up tomorrow. And it's not complicated, right? Because we make it super complicated. I don't know what I'll say. You know what I love about this? He doesn't tell him, hey, when you get there, you need to explain the book of Romans. Um, make, make sure, make sure they understand all of the Old Testament, right? Make sure that you walk them through um, all these big theological words that no one understands. He doesn't say that. He says, hey, when you get there, when you get there, Tell them what Jesus has done. So, so when you go to work tomorrow and you have a big smile on your face, even though you got your own bucket load of stress and somebody looks at you and goes, why are you so happy? Man, let me tell you what Jesus done. I used to live in a tomb and now I, I don't. I live with the living. Huh. I, I, I used to be under the weight of my shame and now I'm not. In fact, I don't even care about what I've done because it's not even mine anymore. It's gone. I used to be broken, but Jesus made me whole. I used to think that the sun wasn't going to come up today because it was too heavy for me to bear. And the sun came up. And so sometimes I just think that we forget what God's done for us. And so we're going we're gonna to end the service with communion today. So if you're helping with communion, you can come on forward. But we're going to end with communion. And here's the purpose of communion today. I believe that communion is a rock cairn. <laughs> I believe that it's a rock cairn that we are given to point us forward, to anchor us back and point us forward. And, and so this morning, when you begin to get cups in your hand, by the way, take two. Take, take one stack of cups. There's two cups there. Make sure you twist them. You'll find bread and juice. But I believe that, that what you're about to hold is a rock cairn. And what I mean by that is it's designed to point to who you are. It's designed to point of, of what God has done for you. Why? Because sometimes we just need to remember all that God's done for us. Sometimes we just need to remind ourselves, oh, Jesus, you did all that. That makes me this today. Stuff like this, that, that you're free today. You're free from sin today. Why? Because Jesus stretched out his arms and Jesus took your sin on him. You're forgiven today. Why are you forgiven today? 
Because Jesus showed up on your behalf, took your sin on him, and gave you forgiveness for it. You're not guilty today. You know why? Because your guilty verdict was given to Jesus and you got walk away free, not guilty. You got everything you didn't deserve. You got the exact opposite. You are loved today by heaven. That might be the most important thing you hear all day. Is that heaven knows your name and heaven loves you. And when heaven went to a cross and stretched out his arms, he had your name on his mind. And so I'm going to give you some time. We'll take it all together, but I'm going to give you some time just to, you need to thank God. You need to confess something. You need to ask God, you, whatever you need to do, this is your time with God. And then I'll come back and close this out. Jesus knew humanity pretty well. And he knew we'd need moments when, I don't know about you, but the weight of work, the weight of home, the weight of what I'm facing, the weight of just being human sometimes can muddy the waters of who I think I am and what I need to be. And just like the story of the, the demon-possessed man, he just becomes a guide. We're just guides, church. We're just guides. And what we guide people to is what we've received. And so I think that's why Jesus gave us this, this rock cairn, so to speak, of communion that just reminds us of who we are. That reminds me that I don't have to strive. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to be good enough. I don't have to somehow attain something or I don't like, it just reminds me that Jesus did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And he had his friends in a room and it was the last meal they would eat together. And he just simply took ordinary bread, <laughs> ordinary bread. And that bread would be a marker for all of humanity that every time we're supposed to be reminded, by the way, when we're at home and we break bread, it was just a meal. We're supposed to be reminded every single time we have a loaf of bread or a piece of bread or whatever, that when you break it, remind, be reminded that he showed up on the planet for you in physical form and took your place. And so with them, he said, um, to do this in remembrance of him, he said, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. You may partake of the bread. And then he took a cup often left alone because it was the cup of salvation. And he was declaring once and for all that salvation, freedom, life was going to come through him. That he would gain death and you would gain life. That he would go to the place of the tombs and you would walk out of the tomb. That you would walk in with unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred and you would walk out knowing love and forgiveness. And so he took the cup and he handed it to them and he said, drink, do this again in remembrance of me. And so church, we are 
We are ordinary people pointing to an extraordinary God. We are markers that mark the path home. We are guides. We are guides that lead people through our story to Jesus. So let's pray. God, we come before you. We're so grateful for who you are. We're so thankful for the way that you love us. God, thank you for the story of this man who we resonate so much with that God how different he was before he met you. God, thank you for stories that make us stretch logic to a point of faith. God, thank you for reminders that you've given us so that we don't forget who we are. God, would you, um, over these next days and weeks, would you show us what it is to be God, comfortable with being ordinary and showing off the extraordinary God that you are. God, would you allow our lives to become these rock monuments for people so that they would know the way home. And God, would you allow us to be guides that don't forget who we are, but God, we remember all that you've done for us and we just simply tell that story. So God, we're grateful for you as we lift our voice in worship. Would you, would you just cement on our hearts the words we need to carry? Would you allow us to just voice our love and our gratitude and God, for all that you've done for us as we declare, we're just here to worship God. We're just here to worship. And everybody said, amen.